All right. Hey, we're going to invite you to have a seat again. Welcome. Happy Easter to you guys. If I've not had the chance to meet you, my name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here at Midtown. And as we always start on Easter, he is risen. He is risen indeed. I don't know if you've experienced this in your own life, found this to be true, but there are moments in my life that can only be described with words like breakthrough or awakening. Walking through my life, minding my own business, doing what I've always done, which is mostly just trying to survive, make it to tomorrow um, without dying of exhaustion. And you encounter something or someone that pierces through the veil of your understanding, and it resonates with you so deeply that something inside just sort of clicks and the horizons of possibility shift. Life before this event and life after are never the same. You actually kind of mark your life by these moments, right? Like there was life before this and there's life after this, but one thing I know is I'll never be the same after this. And this isn't just a religious experience, right? Like you think about, this is kind of how a lot of human experiences work. Think about a relationship where you're kind of trying to add up the pros and the cons. Should I marry this person or should I not marry this person? And it, it, maybe some of you are hyper-analytical and you have Excel spreadsheets or whatever, but for most of us, it's like there's a moment when it just becomes obvious and something falls into place and you're sitting around talking to friends and you're like, yes, this is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. Or maybe you've gone through a vocational change, right? And, and you're thinking about changing careers or you're just out of college and you've got all these degrees and you're educated beyond your own understanding, but you're like, I literally have nothing, no, no idea what I'm doing with my life. And then all of a sudden with blazing clarity, there's just a moment where you're like, yes, this is what I want to do. And you begin to reorganize your life around that. Or, or maybe you move cities, right? Like everybody in Indianapolis, I'm not from here, but everybody in Indianapolis wants to live somewhere else, at least for a little while. And so you kind of come up through your teens and you move away, and maybe you move away to the coast or something, and then you have this, this moment where you're just like, I'm not happy, I'm restless, and it's like, oh yeah, I need to go home. And, and you move back, maybe begrudgingly, maybe because you run out of money, but you're back and you're here. And, and it wasn't, again, like this hyper-rational process. It was just like an, an insight, something awoke within you, and then you just knew what you needed to do, and it really began to reframe the rest of your life. That's kind of the closest analogy that I can borrow to describe why I'm here today and why I think many of us are here today. I, I didn't grow up in church. I, I was not a person predisposed to be religious. I come from a long line of irreligious uh, people who didn't find anything particularly meaningful in Jesus of Nazareth. And yet there was a moment in my life where the story of Jesus kind of came up and bumped up against my own story. And it wasn't that I sat down and watched some History Channel special. You know, they're always on this time of year, like A&E special about the historical Jesus. And I got all these, you know, cold facts and evidence, and I created pro-con lists, and I waited out, and I had this super rational process. And it was like, yes, I want to believe in Jesus, right? Like, it wasn't like that. It was just, it's not that reason and facts don't matter. It's just not how we make major decisions. They sort of find us more than we find them. And somewhere along the way, Maybe you too encountered the story of the resurrection and it became compelling and it broke through the mundanity of your ordinary life and it resonated so deeply with you and with your own story and it made the most sense of what you experience and you long for in your life and in the world that you couldn't help but say yes to Jesus. Does that feel familiar? G.K. Chesterton, in describing his own experience, he was a Christian intellectual, probably one of the greatest of the previous generations, and he said this in answer to the historical Query of why it, being Jesus, the claims of Jesus was accepted. 
It is accepted. I answer for millions of others in my reply because it fits the lock, because it's like life. It's one among many stories, and only it happens to be a true story. It's one among many philosophies, only it happens to be the truth. There's something about it that just clicks, and then everything's different after. And I say that, and I open with that, because I know that there are probably, as there are every Sunday, particularly on Easter, two kinds of people in the room. Those for whom that awakening has happened, and that's why you're here. In fact, this is the last place you ever thought you'd be a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and yet here you are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And there are also those of you who are here, and you're just visiting with us, and that's not your reality, right? Like somebody told you there's great coffee in this red brick building, and somehow you got hoodwinked into here, and you found out it was church. Welcome. We're glad that you're here, too. But you don't believe this. And maybe you, as most people do, you grew up in the church, right? If you're from Indiana, it's almost to be synonymous with growing up around church, and you've heard about this, but you're not in with Jesus, and maybe you're exploring. And I just want to say welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here, and we hope this can be a safe place. And maybe, maybe you come to a time in your life, like the character we're going to see today, where you're open. And I just want to encourage you to be open to what Jesus might want to say to you, because I want to tell you a story today from John, the Gospel of John, about a woman who had a breakthrough moment, who had an awakening moment, an awakening in the midst of one of the darkest moments of her life, and it reframed every other moment in her life going forward, and it's why we're here today. And I don't know if you find yourself in a season like that, but maybe some of that will resonate with you. And I want to, as we read this story, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20. If you don't want a Bible, there should be a red one around you. Um, We're going to be on page 963. But I want to invite you to put yourself in the story, to imagine yourself in this story, to see yourself in these characters, because these are real people who would have found the resurrection story and event as unlikely, as wild, as surprising, and as unexplainable as you might today. And yet, these are people who found a truth in a person named Jesus on the other side of death that resonated so deeply with them, that transformed them, and gave them a meaning that they were longing for. And so let's look together at John chapter 20 at a story of a woman named Mary outside of a tomb. One story, two scenes. Scene one starts with tears. And so let's read this together. On the first day of the week, John 21 Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So she went running. uh, She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she went running to Simon Peter, to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Verse 11, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener. She replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, 
and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She told them what he had said to her. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One story, two scenes, the tears and the turns. That's what I want to talk about today. Let's start with the tears. The story of the resurrection event is it was handed down to us by Jesus' beloved disciple, John. Doesn't begin as we'd expect. It doesn't begin the way that many of us think of a day like this with resurrection and Easter with exuberant celebration. Maybe you don't. If you have kids, your morning probably didn't start with exuberant celebration, okay? But it started differently. The emotional mood and atmosphere was one of actually not exuberant celebration, but excruciating tears and terror. In this scene, John introduces us to one of the main characters for the very first time in his gospel, a female disciple of Jesus named Mary Magdalene. She comes to the tomb with a group of devoted women early on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion to care for and to honor Jesus' body. John provides some literary clues that orient us to the scene. He tells us that, that it's still dark outside. In the Gospel of John, darkness functions not only as a marker of time or chronology, but as a, a sort of spiritual metaphor for humanity's inner blindness to the broader purposes of Jesus and his kingdom. So it's literally dark outside the time of day, and it's symbolically dark inside the minds and the hearts of Jesus' disciples. They can't see what's really going on. After discovering that the stone had been mysteriously rolled away from the tomb and Jesus' body had gone missing, we find Mary, the lone disciple, after all the other disciples have run away, the, the word here is abiding or staying at the tomb of Jesus, crying. The two angels ask Mary, why are you crying? Now, this is not the angels being like, you guys have friends like this, like when you're in the midst of grief, they just ask the dumbest questions and they come to you and they're just like, what happened? And tell me all, and they ask weird details and you're just like, I'm grieving, can you not? Like this is not emotionally obtuse questioning by detached observers seeking information. These are compassionate words spoken by loving, let's call them spiritual directors, who are inviting Mary into a moment of awakening and encounter with the resurrected Jesus. They're probing her heart and her soul, seeking to direct her attention inward into her own heart. Why was Mary crying? To answer that question and understand the significance of this moment, let me just quickly remind you of the backstory. Mary is mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. She's the only disciple referenced in all four resurrection accounts as the very first human being to see the resurrected Jesus. Why? Well, in Luke chapter 8, we meet Mary, a woman of means, but a woman who had suffered deeply from a history of demonization and an unspecified chronic illness of some sort in ancient Palestine. If you, had, if you were either demonized or disabled in some way, this was not just a spiritual, but a physiological and a social problem. But if you had both of them, well, that's just a completely different kind of pain. 
It was thought by some that you were cursed by God and that it was somehow your fault or your parents' fault. So you can imagine the kind of life, and maybe you've lived this life, where everywhere you show up, people look at you and they assume guilt. Like, what did you do for God to curse you in this way? What did your parents do? They were being held in constant suspicion. And not only that, but she carried the, the stigma of public shame and the reality of exclusion from normal community relationships, from holiday festivals, from temple worship. Her life would have been one characterized by shame and guilt and fear and loneliness. Scholars believe it's likely that Mary encountered Jesus when he ministered in her hometown of Magdala in the area of Galilee because the focus of Jesus' ministry was on healing and welcoming, particularly those on the margins of society. When Mary encountered Jesus for the first time, she found the one who called himself the way and the truth and the life. She found love. She found meaning. She found the embrace that she had been longing for, maybe the first time she had been touched in decades. I mean, can you see Mary, like, in your imagination? Can you, can you see her smiling? Can you see her laughing in sort of that weird laughter that happens when you're released from a burden? It's sort of that awkward laughter, like her running, her screaming with a sort of freedom that comes when that painful burden you've carried your whole life is suddenly lifted. In a culture where women were often spiritually devalued, socially dismissed, legally disenfranchised. Jesus' invitation to this woman to become his disciple would have been radical. It would have been shocking. Jesus was a, was a man who honored women, who healed women, who welcomed women, who taught women, who incorporated women into his community of disciples. And Mary's experience with Jesus was so transformative that she began funding his ministry and traveling with him alongside some other women who were wealthy. I mean, imagine the momentum of traveling with Jesus, seeing the healings in the crowds, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, the most insightful teaching you ever heard in your life. Like, imagine the best TED Talk ever, right? Like, you're, you're hearing this from the greatest philosopher to ever live, Jesus himself. And you're just like, this is awesome. The kingdom of God is here. And then all of a sudden, everything shifts. Just as quickly as the flame was lit, it's snuffed out. Jesus is arrested. Jesus goes to trial. The crowds turn on him, the same crowds yelling, Hosanna, one day, or yelling, crucify him the next. And Mary and this group of women are the only ones of the disciples to be with Jesus through these final events of his life. They watch him crucified. They watch him brutally tortured. They watch him breathe his last and say it is finished. They heard those words. They smelled those smells. They absorbed those sounds of trauma in their bodies. And then there was silence and scattering. Mary is crying because she's lost her beloved, the one who knew her the one who saw her like nobody else, the one who welcomed her and dignified her. And, and I don't know if, you, if you've lost somebody like that in your own life, if you know what it's like, but imagine what it must have felt like to lose that kind of love. And, and then the questions that you begin to ask, who's gonna care for me? Who's gonna see me like that? Who's gonna know me that way? 
And then you begin to like reinterpret, if you've gone through that kind of thing, you begin to reinterpret your past and look back and say, was any of it real? Was it just a dream? Was this just a figment of my imagination? Was this sort of a, a projection of some unconscious desire that I projected onto God, but it wasn't real? Is there, is there any true meaning in life? Is my faith worth anything? I mean, if the one who claimed to be Messiah is dead, maybe it's all just a fairy tale. Hers was not a crisis of faith. It was a crisis of meaning and a crisis of love. And maybe some of you can relate. We live in a cultural moment where there's so much trauma, so much pain, so much heartache. We just spent the last six months of Lent reflecting on the depth of sin and suffering in our world. We see that kind of pain on a global level. We're living through one of the great humanitarian crises of our generation in Ukraine. We see it on sort of a, a generational level with Gen Z, with our children, where loneliness and anxiety and a rising mental health epidemic is becoming a public health crisis. And of course, we see it in our own bodies and our own souls very personally as we move through our days with a low-grade sense of boredom and restlessness and anxiety and exhaustion because it's hard to manage that kind of pain. Is there any meaning in all this pain? The great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy experienced a crisis of meaning himself at age 50 when he realized everything he loved in a matter of time would be taken from him. And so he began to really wrestle and think about the implications of that. In his work, A Confession, he wrote this. My question was the simplest of questions. The age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide. But it's the question lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this. What will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life? The, the, the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. This is the existential question that Mary was asking. And I would argue it's still the pressing question that we're asking today. Is there a meaning that transcends and survives and overcomes death? And the answer, as it often does, comes to Mary, as it comes to us, in a surprising unexpected, kind of unbelievable, wild way that only Jesus can do. And so scene two brings us from the tears to the turns. And I say turns because in the narrative, there is a literary device. There's a literary use of the word turning. If you notice in verse 14 and verse 16, there are two turns in the story. Turn number one, we see Mary in this ocean of grief she encounters Jesus. She turned around, verse 14, and saw Jesus, but she didn't know it was Jesus. She saw Jesus, but she didn't really see Jesus. She saw him, but she didn't know him. She didn't recognize him. Now, is this not the human condition in a nutshell? God is present. God is working all around us. But we don't have the vision, we don't have the capacity of heart to see him, the honesty to acknowledge that it might be him there, to recognize him and to receive his loving invitations. And if you read the New Testament, the gospel accounts both in the resurrection and beyond, you'll see that Mary is not the only one who doesn't recognize him. The disciples on the road to Emmaus 
with their dreams shattered and all kinds of disappointment and disillusionment surrounding them, Jesus shows up and they don't recognize him in their grief. Peter, in John chapter 21, just one chapter to the right, Jesus comes to him while he's fishing and he doesn't recognize him. And I wonder with Peter if it's not so much like he doesn't recognize him as he doesn't want to see Jesus on the other side of his betrayal. You ever had those? I, I, I don't know that I want to see him based on what I just did. The fearful disciples don't recognize him later in this chapter. They think he's a ghost. They're huddled in fear and anxiety. Thomas doesn't acknowledge him until he touches his wounds. He can't see him because he's looking for something physical to grab onto in his grief. The religious leaders in Acts chapter 13, it says, didn't recognize Jesus. And they were invested in not recognizing Jesus because Jesus was a threat. The resurrected Jesus is dangerous. He's a threat to their power, their status, and their control. Like some of us were invested in this not being true because it's going to confront certain aspects of our lives that we don't like God touching, messing with. So can you see yourself in these characters who don't recognize, they see, but they don't see. They're asleep to reality. Now, why couldn't Mary see him? There's all kinds of possible explanations, but I just want to put two before you. One, one explanation with two examples. Simply put, I think that Mary could not see Jesus because her story and her experiences created expectations that blinded her from encountering Jesus as he was, not as she thought he would be. The first thing we could talk about with Mary's experiences is her experiences as a first century Jew. Contrary to many modern educated people in the way that we think, the, nobody in the ancient world expected a resurrection. These weren't people waiting for a resurrection like this. They, as a people very proximate to death and suffering, they watch people die. We send people away when they get sick and die. They were up close. There was no nursing home, nowhere to send them. They walked with them through death. They knew from the plain observation of the facts that dead people stay dead. Jews believed in two ages, and the bodily resurrection would happen to everyone together at the same time at the end of history. No good Jew believed that the Messiah, especially, would die and rise again in the middle of history. So she and the rest of the disciples, they don't have a mental model for the resurrection of Jesus. They are not expecting it to happen like this. And I would argue similarly, we are living in a cultural moment where the secular story, it's a different kind of story, but our secular story tempts us to dismiss stories like this one as myths, as fables, as fairy tales. Like, I'm supposed to believe this? Like, really? Like, I'm supposed to believe that a Middle Eastern rabbi born to a poor virgin on the outskirts of power, despite no formal education or training, claims to be God, dies on the cross for people's sins, somehow rolls back a stone three days later, weighing thousands of pounds, escapes a highly guarded military group of elite soldiers, reappears to his disciples before floating back to heaven to be with God. That's the story? It does sound kind of absurd when you say it like that. And not only that, the primary eyewitness is a woman who just a few years earlier was demon-possessed who claims to have a transcendent, trippy encounter with the divine. Like, that's the eyewitness? That's what you want me to believe? Like a poltergeist-type story? I'm supposed to organize my life around that? 
But here's the thing. It is crazy. And I think they thought, thought it was crazy. I think they thought it was kind of wild and kind of surprising. Nobody's looking for this. Because if you know anything about ancient literature, if this was just a hero myth, this is not how you wrote hero myths in the ancient world. Hero myths were constructed with a script that went something like this. A dazzling, superhuman character born at the center of power. So Jesus should have been born in Rome instead of on the margins of society. Dramatically and violently confronts the forces of evil in the world instead of being victimized by them. And the story for a hero would end with a triumphant victory and a huge public platform. And they would, you know, kind of roll into the city of Rome, sit on Caesar's throne to all of the kind of applause and adulation of the crowds. And the whole world believes and story over. And Jesus gets a shameful death on a cross and abandonment by the small group of disciples that he had. Furthermore, in the ancient world, you would never cast women in the lead role of ancient eyewitnesses. Women could not legally testify in court And not my words, but Romans' words, they were considered emotional and unreliable as eyewitnesses. They had no legal rights to testify. It was one of the major critiques of the Roman elite against Christianity was that they were basing the resurrection of Jesus on the words of women who were the first eyewitnesses. Now, the story of Jesus, if we're honest, if I'm honest, it's a little bit embarrassing. It's a little bit humiliating. It's not the story I would write if I were inventing the hero myth. It can't be true unless this is actually what happened. Unless there's no other plausible explanation for the transformation of the lives of these disciples and the explosive growth of the Christian movement that based its claims and staked its life on this resurrection event. Maybe, just maybe, they actually believed it because it actually happened, and it's what makes the most sense of what they experienced. That's what we're claiming. So there's the experiences and and just kind of the lack of a sort of imagination for the resurrection. But there's also the experiences of Mary as a young disciple. And I think many of us can relate here. There was a sort of beautiful simplicity and naivete to the first season of Mary's discipleship with Jesus. What we might call like stage one spirituality. Mary's story of pain intersected with the story of Jesus. And she has this flesh and blood profound encounter with Jesus, and she's invited into his group of disciples. Can you imagine being Mary, waking up every single day, traveling with Jesus, eating with him, talking with him, embracing him in a non-coercive, weird way, bringing her questions to him, watching him perform signs and wonders? I mean, this created a sort of mental map, a sort of rhythm of life that patterned grooves in her soul and imagination for what it looked like to be a disciple, and then the crucifixion, and then death. And as death and grief can often do, they shift the dynamics of our experience. What was once a simple and coherent story of following Jesus is now fragmented in the complexity of evil and suffering and grief and the physical absence of her rabbi. How now, on Saturday, does she make sense of her discipleship? How now is she to see Jesus when the lights go dark and the deeper questions and doubts on Saturday begin to rise in her soul and she has no rabbi to take those questions to. Some of us have lived this story of a shattered simplicity. You grew up in a small conservative town in Indiana or a community. You faithfully went to church every Sunday. You heard and you actually believed the stories about Jesus. You trusted him at a young age. You sang the songs. You prayed the liturgy. 
You, you were a leader in your youth ministry. You entered into young adulthood before going off to IU or Purdue or Butler, or maybe you're more sophisticated and you go to the coast to get educated at some elite university. But you had this blazing clarity about who Jesus was and how you're gonna live your life for Jesus. And in about five minutes on campus, you've moved to a big, complex city and you encounter big, complex problems and suffering. And you have a mental health breakdown. You begin to wrestle with doubts about your faith, the hypocrisy of the church, the hypocrisy of your own life. You get in close proximity to the poor and you see injustice in a way you never saw it growing up. And all of a sudden, this simple story about following Jesus that you carried inside simply collapsed in the face of alternative stories. And you find yourself disillusioned, despairing, deconstructing your faith. Jessica Meisner, who was a writer uh, for BuzzFeed, this article that went viral a couple years ago, talking about her own experience just like this. She says, agnostic is too strong of a word. I'm apathetic. I think Christianity isn't real, but I miss believing it was. She's haunted by the memory of this simplicity in the midst of a complex world. There's a deep grief in leaving behind the faith of our childhood. And it's not that we stop believing. We, you, you will believe something, right? You will be discipled by someone. You will believe another story. It's just a more secular narrative where the horizons of possibility shrink down and your vision basically becomes an inward journey of your own inner world and concerns and feelings and desires. Because in an imminent frame where there is no God, all we are left with is our own inner lives, Ronald Rollheiser talks about this in his book, The Shattered Lantern. He says, like, it's like taking a walk and being preoccupied in a beautiful place. He says, imagine taking a walk in a beautiful forest on a splendid summer's day. The earth is ablaze with the fire of God and the sights and sounds and smells are enough to make you want to take your shoes off before the burning bush. But if your mind and heart are hopelessly torn, and if, for example, you are painfully infatuated with someone who has just rejected you, you will see virtually nothing on this walk. Not just a beauty and creation, but nothing at all. You are inside yourself, torn by your pain, endlessly reviewing past and future conversations, possibilities and fantasies. For all you are actually seeing, hearing, or smelling, or beauty, of na- beauty in nature, you could just as profitably be walking in a parking lot or a rubbish dump. You are locked in an inner world whose obsessive reality absorbs all of your awareness. The outside world has little power to penetrate or even to distract you. Your reality has been reduced to the size, shape, and color of your inner world. He says, this is what it's like to be a modern religious person who grew up in the church and got disillusioned and now find ourselves wrestling with a new reality. And what we need, like Mary, is an awakening. We need what theologian Paul Ricoeur called a second naivete, right? Like for those of us who grew up around religion, we have these sort of childish beliefs. We have these childish ways of seeing God and seeing ourselves and seeing the world. And that's right and normal. But one person commenting that goes on to say, we need to outgrow these. The purpose of this deconstructing stage is not to leave us tentative and unsure about everything. Ultimately, it should lead us to a second naivete, an understanding arrived at on the far side of complexity, which is truly childlike as opposed to childish. That's why Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to children, not the childish, but the childlike who trust him on the other side of that complexity. 
I mean, that's, I long for so many of you who are wounded, who find yourself confused, and maybe you're here and that's your story, to find Jesus in the midst of that complexity. And could I just encourage you to give Jesus an adult glance, right? Not to look at Jesus and the stories through the lens of your childhood experiences merely, but to look at the resurrected Jesus and to give him another more thoughtful look, to open yourself and to realize that maybe all the soul-crushing experiences you've had are not the end of your life, are not the end of your faith, but they can become the seeds of a new and deeper life with Jesus. And that's what Mary shows us, that death and grief is not the end. It might be the end of my expectations, but there's an invitation to a new experience. Death and grief can be a portal into a new encounter with a new kind of resurrection life in Jesus. One that doesn't leave our faith behind, but ones that le- one that leaves childishness behind and begins to step into an adult relationship with Jesus. Now, I wanna just kind of begin to wrap up by just pointing out something fascinating here in the text and we, as we talk about the second turn. What's what's fascinating here is that Mary mistakes Jesus in the midst of her grief for the gardener. And the reality is she's not wrong. John is making a theological point. If you remember the story of humanity in Genesis chapter one begins in a garden with God bringing order and flourishing from chaos and darkness. Those first gardeners, Adam and Eve, fail to care for God's garden and sin poisons and destroys God's beautiful people and his beautiful creation. But here we are at resurrection again in the midst of darkness and chaos, but this time there is a new gardener. Jesus has come as the second Adam to bring joy and flourishing and hope out of darkness and despair and grief, which brings us to turn number two. Jesus said to her, Mary, turning around, she says, Rabbi, which means teacher. Mary turns the first time in blindness and misses Jesus. But when Jesus calls her name, she turns again. And she turns towards recognition and towards faith. She turns away from the grave. She's standing outside the grave. She turns away from the grave. She turns away from her past. She turns away from death. And she turns to see the face and the person of Jesus. Turning in the Bible is a metaphor for faith. Can you imagine how emotional it must have been to think all of this is gone and then if you've ever been lost in a crowd or you've lost a child to have four children, I feel like we're always losing them and they, when they were little. It's like you, you, you're like desperately searching for them and then all of a sudden you hear that voice and you turn and it's just this moment of relief. Love calls her name. Jesus calls her name, and there is this awakening, this breakthrough moment that reframes everything else in her life moving forward. And notice the first words of Jesus are not, how dare you, how could you? They're not words of power. They're not words of fear. They're not words of shame. It is simply her name, a personal invitation, Mary. Words of love. Jesus' love, this powerful, eternal, redemptive, self-giving love, the only love that can overturn and outlive the power of sin and death, which should tell us something about the nature and character of this God. He is a God of profound love, mysterious love, suffering love. And when he comes back with his resurrection appearances, he doesn't come, it doesn't go to Caesar. (laughs) 
He doesn't go to the religious leaders. He goes to his friends to restore them, to encourage them, and to invite them deeper into life and love and intimacy with him. I love the way that Frederick Buechner, the great novelist, says that the resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. And Jesus looks at her and he says, what are you looking for? What do you want? What do you really want? And then he says that weird thing like, don't cling to me, which sounds kind of harsh. It's not that he was saying, you can't hug me. I'm sure they were actually already embracing it in tears. Jesus wasn't saying, don't touch me. He's saying, let go of your assumptions. Let go of your expectations. Let go of your paradigms and embrace what I'm doing right here. What I'm doing right here is not going to be what I was doing back there. What got you here will not get you there. So let go. Don't cling to me. Don't try to possess me. Don't try to hold me down. I'm about to ascend to my Father and pour out the Spirit. Everything's about to change, and that's good because I'm going to take you on a deeper journey of trust and faith and freedom from sin and suffering that's not only going to be about you, Mary, but about the other disciples and about your community and about the world. And ultimately, we are here today because Mary didn't cling to Jesus, but she let him go. And he says, go tell my brothers that I'm about to be ascended to my father, your father. Because the resurrection is not just a personal story of salvation, although it is, but it's an invitation to be a part of God's restorative work in the world. Go tell, go announce, go live out this resurrection life. Go do justice, go love mercy, go work for the poor, go restore what's been broken in the world. You go out and do what I did. This is our task as Christians because Jesus didn't just come to Mary to help her escape the earth and take her to heaven when she died. He came to bring heaven to her, heaven to earth, the future into the present to bring radical change into every area of her life and into every corner of creation. And Jesus says, I've done everything that is needed to make that happen. Now, would you just trust me? Would you just apprentice yourself to me? Would you follow me and carry my life in yours? And with your brothers and sisters, go live, not just a life that can conquer death. This is not just about surviving death. It's an invitation to a better and higher quality of life right now. Go live, Jesus is saying, and live with the reality of the good news of the resurrection. That is what we are called to be as the church. That is why we are gathered here today, not just for, you know, expensive coffee or expensive brunch or just checking religious boxes or whatever. We are here to be a testimony to the good news of the resurrection of Jesus to say, this is it, this is life, the kingdom of God is here. I love the way that closes this quote from William Willimon. He says, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there could be no other explanation than that something decisive has happened in history. And that's why we're here today. And so I want to invite you as we come to communion, just to consider this Jesus. What do you see when you see Jesus? Maybe you're here and, man, you're just like, wow, I've never thought of it that way. And I'm not really a disciple of Jesus. I might be a religious person or whatever, but I'm not really into Jesus. And I see this and I want this. And I see this kind of making sense of my life. I just want to invite you to, to open yourself to trust Jesus, to say yes to Jesus, to come and receive communion and Become his disciple. The safest place in the world for pain, for trauma, for sin. There's no safer place to be than right here with Jesus together. We confess our sins. 
and we find forgiveness and restoration. We hear Jesus call our name, Brandon, Mary. I mean, that's the invitation of Jesus to you today, to receive his love. And if that's not where you're at today, we're so glad that you're here. But as others come to take communion, we just invite you to stay in your seat. And maybe this becomes just a time of opening yourself to seeing the resurrection through a new lens. And maybe you come and you join this community and you begin to wrestle with the claims of Jesus on your life. And maybe you begin to take seriously for the first time what it might look like to see resurrection through a different lens and to find Jesus there. Let me pray for us. And then I'll invite us to take communion together after a time of confession. Father, thank you for the good news of the resurrection. Thank you that you've invited us into the space to be transformed. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would open up our eyes. Would you give us one of those breakthrough moments where we see you, where something awakens inside of us, something new that we long for that we didn't even know was possible. Jesus, would you just open us up and would you speak our names in a way that we can hear and respond to? May we, with faith, a desperate faith, cling to you as our only hope of life and joy and meaning, we pray in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.